This is episode number 593 with Professor Philip Bourne, founding dean of the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia. Today's episode is brought to you by Z by HP, the workstations for data science. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by the distinguished data science researcher, Professor Philip Bourne. Philip is the founding dean of the University of Virginia's School of Data Science. He's professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia as well. He's founding editor-in-chief of the open access journal PLOS Computational Biology. He was previously associate director for data science of the NIH, that is the illustrious National Institutes of Health in the United States. He's held roles at the University of California, San Diego and Columbia University in an academic career that began half a century ago. He holds a PhD in chemistry from Flinders University in Australia. Despite Professor Bourne being a deep technical expert, he conveys concepts so magnificently that today's episode should be broadly appealing to practicing data scientists and non-technical listeners alike. In this episode, Philip details why he founded a school of data science and why such schools are uniquely positioned to bear the fruits of applied data science research within universities, what the most important data science skills are in both academia and industry, how computing and data science have evolved across academic departments in recent decades, fascinating practical applications of his biomedical data science research into the structure and function of biological proteins, and the absolutely essential role of open source code and open access publishing in data science. All right, you ready for this deeply interesting episode? Let's go. Professor Bourne, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Where are you calling in from? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm actually in a lovely Charlottesville, Virginia, and Central Virginia. University of Virginia. I bet that it is pretty nice there year-round. Probably hot in the summer, but the rest of the season's delightful. Yeah, it's uh, it's, the weather's actually pretty good here. I I was in Washington for three years, which is much more humid, much more swamp-like. You know, I'd say we're we're much more pastoral down here. Nice, lovely. Well, I've never been. someday. I hope to check it out. Um, So we know each other through Amy Brand. So Amy was on episode number 567, and she had an awesome episode on open source and the importance of having science and journals and anything (laughs) that we can think of be open. And we're going to get to some of these open topics later on in the episode. Um, I understand that you also know Shaoli Meng, who was in episode 581. Uh, kind of your your counterpart in a way over at Harvard. He's leading various data science initiatives, not a school of data science there yet. No, we actually had, he also runs the Harvard Data Science Review, uh, was very instrumental in setting it up. Yeah. And uh, we had conversations that actually linked the two, uh, the Amy uh, t- together in the, uh, you know, I was very keen that they make that open uh, open access, which you know, has, has actually gone along pretty well. 
I actually think the, the model for journals uh, ought to change even further. We ought to have much more in line with the interactive journals. Uh, and that's something that uh, I'm hoping to work on in the future. But, uh, you know, particularly in data science, uh, you know, staring at static imagery of, of data is not necessarily the best way to convey the message. So, but, you know, all things for the future. This wasn't something I was planning on talking about, but have you ever come across a distill.pub? as a data science publication? Uh, no. Um, it is a really cool, it is um, designed to be interactive first. So it's, it has lots of uh, interactive um, blog posts. They typically put a lot of effort into each one. So it's more about uh, quality than quantity. And in fact, I've just now in real time gone and looked up and they actually haven't published anything since September. Um, so I don't know how, how active that is, but there's lots of, there are a few dozen historical articles in there and they are, uh, interactivity first. So that might be something that interests listeners yeah. looking for. Yeah. I mean, Jupyter Notebooks achieves some of that, but it's not, it's the recognition piece and there lies the problem. It's the culture of the, the whole publishing industry that, you know, what counts towards, uh, you know, your scholarship is typically quite traditional so that the idea you know it's it's just not well accepted that we actually have a wikimedian in residence for example but no one gets tenure in a university by uh, publishing wiki page wikipedia pages <laughs> uh which is uh, in my mind actually somewhat unfortunate um, right but you know that's the nature of the beast unfortunately so yeah. it's, it's changing that system you know one slow step at a time well, it seems like even this effort to still to have things uh, be quite interactive. Um, I'm now by scrolling down, I've noticed that they posted in July 2021 that they're taking a break. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, case in point. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, uh, you are the founding dean of the University of Virginia School of Data Science. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a school of data science? And what prompted you to lead the creation of the school? So I actually came uh, originally, I was the chief data officer of the National Institutes of Health. And I decided at one point I didn't want to work in government anymore. So I was looking to go back to academia. Uh, and I actually came here for a couple of reasons. One, at the time it wasn't a school, but there was already an institute, a data science institute. And it was just a very small group of people. And I just really enjoyed uh, the interactions I had here, and I could see that there was an opportunity to sort of build it out and then also do my own research. And it was only later that the, the leadership of the university, uh, I have to say that a large uh, gift, in fact, the largest gift in the university's history, uh, helped launch the school. But that ultimately was not oh, wow. the reason for doing it. It was really that uh, the, the importance of data science got elevated uh, to that of being a school, um, right. which is, you know, a major construct within a, an academic framework. And it, it hasn't happened much. I mean, uh, University of Virginia is a little over 200 years old, and it's only the 12th time in its history that a school's been formed. So I right. think it, it sort of speaks to the importance going forward that data science is perceived to have. Yeah. Uh, I mean... You're preaching to the choir, I guess, a bit here <laughs> on the Superdata yeah, Science Podcast. Yeah. 
but it, it makes a lot of sense to us. So I guess the idea is that it brings together lots of different disciplines that are critically important in data science. So things like mathematics and computer science, statistics, um, these can all be taught in uh, one place. There, there's, I guess, a sense of uh, camaraderie and scholarship between those disciplines that overlap in data science. Yeah, there's also competition, of course, uh, <laughs> with respect to those existing disciplines. I mean, I think from our point of view, what we speak about the school as being a school without walls. And really that takes what you just described, which are core elements that come from statistics, computer science, applied math, and so on. But really it's the, it's the domains to which that's applied. I think that, that's what makes for data science, you know, in my view. And you know, what we're trying to do here is, not, is to sort of pervade throughout the university framework uh, and essentially be a point of exchange of best practices where you know, we bring together people and methods and data, um, protocols and workflows, whatever else it might be, uh, that we share those more broadly across, frankly, what is a siloed institution, uh, right. not just ours, I'm talking uh, generally. And this, right. of course, applies across not just academia, but also uh, the private sector. So it's really, you know, us trying to be that, that point of exchange uh, and I've got, you know, examples of why I think that's so important that uh, I wish I could go into if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So a good example when I use a fair bit is just, uh, you know, one day I'm sitting in my office and there's a bang on the door and it's this fellow and he says, well, I'm, a, I'm actually uh, a trauma surgeon. And I said, really, what are you doing here? Uh, and he says, well, I'm, I'm actually interested in learning about data science. I said, why? He said, well, I've been doing trauma surgeries for a long time uh, here. UVA has a health system that's really quite renowned. Um, mm -hmm. Got to have that plug in there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it, and he said, I, you know, quite often trauma comes from uh, car crashes and what I noticed antidotally was a relationship between the kind of injury that people were getting and the kind of car crash they were having, whether it was a rollover, front, you know, head on, rear ending, whatever it might be. Huh. So he said, I got interested enough in this that I went to, this is where it gets, you know, the, 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 this is where a medal is deserved. He went to the Department of Motor Vehicles and got public data on crash, uh, crashes in Virginia. And then he tried to begin to map that to the electronic health record which he has access to in the hospital wow. and he said i you know I'm, I, I don't know what tools to apply i don't know how to do this so he ended up doing a master's in data science within our program wow. and the, the notion of all of this of course is that when someone shows up in the er after a crash what what happens now what was happening is that they don't know how to treat them because the injuries are internal, a lot of injuries are internal. So they start doing a full body scan. And occasionally people die in the scanner because, you know, the time it takes to localize where their trauma is. Mm -hmm. You had a better idea through this kind of correlation between a kind of crash and the, in and the internal injury. You mm -hmm. could potentially, you know, short circuit that process by examining that part of the internal organs uh, yeah. immediately and then dealing with it. So I thought this is, this is, to me, the essence of data science, that suddenly you've got, first of all, you've got someone who, who's just you know, wanting 
in, in, in some ways, a sort of citizen who's getting involved in all of this. And, and you're bringing together two very disparate sets of data. I mean, normally people don't think about, you know, what would be typically trans the study in the area of transport versus health. Bringing yeah. those data sets together uh, actually to create societal benefit. Yeah. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good example. Um, you know, so I, I just, you know, that, that, and we've got lots of examples like that that's happening. And it just, it just wouldn't happen without having this, you know, whether it's a school or not, but certainly having this entity that people can turn to to help them with this kind of learning and, 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 and improvement uh, in society. So that's what we're about. If you have one more such example like that one on the tip of your tongue, I would love to hear it. That one was amazing. <laughs> I would say, uh, I mean, well, I could actually cite from my own work, but I won't do that. Let me just sort of twist it slightly <laughs> and say, uh, you know, so people say, well, okay, that's an example, but is it is it generalizable? And, you know, this, this, this capability. And I, I would, my argument, I, I had this conversation with someone once. We were sitting having a, a, a coffee one morning in a bakery uh, here in Charlottesville. And I, I said, okay, pick an object and I'll tell you a data science story about it. There's a data science story <laughs> about everything. So he said, okay, that blueberry muffin in the, in the, in the over there. <laughs> I said, okay, well, you know, first of all, uh, you know, the data that machines are, are collecting now that actually, you know, you know, it's all about manufacturing, uh, you know, they're fine-tunable and effectively the data that's being collected from them is used to tune the instrument uh, over time. So you end up creating, uh, you know, a better a better muffin. Um, so that's the first part of the supply chain. Also, right. well, it's not the first part. It's sort of central part of the supply chain, how you mm -hmm. get the ingredients and how you actually predict how much you need to buy and, and so on. That's more data science in the supply chain. That uh, is, you know, pre pre precursive to actually making the muffin, and then yeah. of course there's the whole distribution, and there's the notion that right now, you know, I can go in, uh, I can look up on Yelp or wherever it might be, and I can see that, you know, they have good, uh, they have good muffins. What I can't do, uh, or bad, or bad muffins, of course. What I can't do is say, well, it's it's ten past eleven in the morning. The odds of that muffin still being sitting on the shelf is one in three. You know, that predictive based on the sales rate and everything else, another piece of data science. So it's all along that supply chain. And, you know, wherever there's jobs to be had all, all along there, and, you know, you know, to make the baker happy. Super cool. And the consumer. This episode of Super Data Science is brought to you by Z by HP. Get rapid results from your most demanding data sets, train data models, and create data visualizations with Z Data Science Machines, which come in both laptop and desktop workstation options. The Data Science Stack Manager on these Z by HP machines provides convenient access to popular tools and updates them automatically, so this helps you customize your environment easily on either Windows or Ubuntu. Find out more at hp.com slash data science. That's hp.com slash data science. All right, now back to our show. Very cool. Those were amazing examples. Uh, I am going to force you to talk about your own work later on, so you haven't gotten off that easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So your field is computational biology. We'll, we'll dig into that later on. Um, is there anything from your decades of experience in computational biology that you've brought into the University of Virginia School of Data Science? Are there any relationships there? Yeah, if I if I think back, uh, you say decades, of course, people aren't going to be able to see me, but it's actually four decades, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and I, you know, I think what's in a in a way what I, what's happening in computational biology is a precursor to what's happening in everything, whether it be religious studies or whether it be history, uh, whether it be economics. Uh, it, it's the same. It's the same process. And so by looking at that process in, in computational biology, which I'll explain to you, I think you, you can see where it comes from. So, you know, when we, when I started doing this, well, it was the late 70s, but uh, let's just call it the 80s. I mean, the, the idea of doing, using computers to study biology was, there was just basically a few of us that were weird, you know, considered weird by the mainstream. <laughs> um, and, and then what really changed it all was the Human Genome Project. So the Human Genome Project that came along in the 90s, were basically what happened there is that uh, NIH, uh, National Institute of Health, did have a lot of things I could say about them. But one good thing I'd say right now is that they had the foresight to say, okay, this is going to generate a bunch of digital data. And it's not just about maintaining and using that data effectively. It's actually leveraging it to, to, to do new science. And it was the very first time I saw the synergy between experiment and computation within biology, at least. And so that 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 notion uh, really got to the point where people got really excited. And then as the genome was becoming realized, industry suddenly realized, wow, there's a huge future here. They basically bought up a whole bunch of the computational biologists. And then, unfortunately, the timeframes with which it was necessary to see the advances that computational biology was going to bring uh, was not in alignment with the short product cycles that industry has. So a lot of those people drifted back to academia. But I'd say over the period of the you know, 2000s and then in, into 2010 and beyond, uh, it became to the point where, you know, you could get a tenured position by doing just computation in biology. So it really, it really it really exploded. Um, and then essentially what happened after that is uh, it just became uh, to the point of being an ex ex very well accepted at par. And I would say to the point where, in a way, where it was sort of a, a support mechanism for experiment, I'd say the opposite is now true, that the predictive modeling that can, is about is and, and will continue to come uh, from the computational study is going to drive what we do in, uh, experimentally. Uh, the experiment becomes essentially a, a validation of a computational uh, outcome. That is a fundamental reversal. And I, I said exactly that what I just described to you to the advisory board of the director of NIH when I was uh, actually at NIH and reported to the director. And no one, you know, my time frame was a bit off. I said 2020, it's now 2022, and we're still not really there, but we're close. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's going to be profound. Uh, and that is something, and so what drove that? Well, initially it was all this digital data that got everybody, you know, got the juices flying and the, 
the compute cycles going and everything happened from there. That's now happening in every conceivable discipline. And I would say sitting here in academia in the 40 years I've been in it, there's nothing going on like what's going on now across all of these disciplines. And as I said already, the goal here is to try and use our school to you know, cross-purpose a lot of the, the innovation that's happening uh, across the different disciplines. So that, that's really the relationship. And you know, I'm now doing it in my own field, of, uh, which I now call, of course, uh, computa- you know, call the, uh, biomedical uh, data sciences is what we're calling it now. Um, and, but it's going on in, in all these other disciplines as well. Nice. So to uh, recap what you said there and paraphrase back to you, from the 80s until the early 2000s, there were only weirdos like you (laughs) (laughs) using computers to analyze biological data, and it was a little bit niche. But then starting around 2010, uh, people driven by things like the Human Genome Project and people seeing the value in all of this uh, digital data, um, people could start to get jobs around 2010 uh, doing computation alone in not only biology, your field, but in other disciplines as well. So the same kind of digitization that we see in biology exemplified by, say, the Human Genome Project, we're seeing this kind of digitization in a lot of different uh, traditional uh, academic disciplines. And that spans not only the sciences, but the arts as well. We see things like um, when I was an undergrad, I don't think there were any faculty at my university who were um, like computational historians, but now lots of people are analyzing digital records, analyzing literature, uh, using natural language processing techniques. And I suspect that similar to what you're describing in biology, um, whether, yeah, whether it's the sciences or the arts, the humanities, people are, uh, you know, a decade ago, people started being able to have their job be focused entirely on applying computational methods to whatever digital data you could get in that discipline. And now what you're saying is that in recent years, um, and a trend that will no doubt continue in the years to come, this these digital records and computational techniques aren't the they're not they're not the the result of trying to think about solving some problem. They actually drive even what problems should be solved, what experiments should be run. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, you were actually listening to what I said. I'm impressed. Um, but, but you did you did you did remind me that uh, just a, a little story that really got this this sort of thing going. Um, and, and really, it sort of goes back to why we're why I'm so keen on doing this school is when I, I was at UC San Diego for many years, and at one, one point I, I became the associate vice chancellor for Innovation Industrial Alliances which took me out of my pharmacology department and took me around the campus to talk to all sorts of different people to try and help them, you know, uh, turn their uh, research ideas into product. And I went to see a fellow in the Rady School of Business. And when I walked in there, he had a paper of mine on his desk uh, from computational biology. And a I started. I'm sorry? A paper of mine? A pa- no, a paper. Of mine. Oh, a, paper, a paper of yours. Sorry, I, uh, I don't it's, know. Yeah, it's, I, it's my Virginia accent. Uh, <laughs> yes. um, so, and I said, oh, you bought that paper out because you knew I was coming to visit you. And he said, no, I had no idea it was your paper. We're using a statistical method from this paper. Mm. So, 
you know, here's, here is, I said, what are you using it for? He said, we're analyzing corning uh, marketing data. And I said, my God, it's completely different than what I was doing with that method. And that got us talking. And it was all about the time, this was like uh, 2010, 12, when big data was just becoming, you know, a thing. So mm -hmm. we got talking and we ended up organizing a big data at UCSD day. And it was the most attended event, I think, as I recall being told, uh, by faculty in the university's history, because they all smelt money. They smelt what was coming. Uh, right. And, you know, it was full of the, the kind of things you just alluded to. The one I particularly remember uh, was someone talked about where in the world is Francis Bacon. And it just so essentially what they'd done is they, uh, they'd done natural language processing and a whole set of digital texts, historical texts that included, you know, references to Francis Bacon. And they built a social network uh, of Francis Bacon where he was on a certain day and time, who he talked to or he <laughs> communicated with. And I thought to myself, however accurate it might be, it is a tool that's going to change how we study history. No one's going to sit there pouring through massive amounts of text in Latin and goodness knows what else uh, ever again, because there'll be, you know, the, that that will be the fallback position. We'll, we'll accelerate the way we study history. And I thought, well, I, you know, that's just one field. And, you know, it's just that's mm -hmm. just happening everywhere. And uh, now I've got all these people doing digital humanities in the school doing, you know, really interesting stuff that, uh, is you know completely alien to me as a as a, a researcher, but incredibly interesting. Did they pick Francis Bacon because of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. But <laughs> I guess they were just scholars that were interested. Somehow got hooked up with these uh, these computing geeks uh, who really helped them and opened their eyes to all of this. Yeah, but yes, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Just kind of. That's kind of, it's one of the most famous contemporary examples of yeah. people trying yeah. to connect the dots around someone's life. And uh, so doing that historically with another bacon. Um, so, all right. So we've talked about the University of Virginia School of Data Science and why uh, you founded it. Uh, and now we've talked about how data science in, or the use of computation and data science has gone from being uh, a sideshow in academic disciplines to being not only integrated in it, but now driving a lot of the innovation that happens um, across disciplines. So this brings me to um, another kind of uh, extrapolation question for you related to academia um, and education, which is, is, is higher education, the way that it's set up today, working well, or do you think that there's room for improvement in the future? Uh, uh, I actually think there's room for lots of improvement. Um, a couple of examples, and I think this plagues not just uh, higher ed, but uh, also other industries, They're including the NIH uh, when I was there, uh, which is just this siloing that uh, prevents the free flow. Uh, just as an example, when I went to NIH as the first chief data officer, uh, I said to Francis Collins, the director of NIH, explain to me my job. And he said, well, it's to take the 27 institutes and centers of NIH that operate independently 
and using data as a catalyst which flows that should flow across the organization i want you to change the culture of nih and i said oh uh, you mean this 40 billion dollar a year operation he said yeah yeah i said okay what am i going to do next week you know uh it's you know i've been changing cultures uh and you know and it's true in in academia you get you know it's interesting what happens in academia because you have these silos. You either belong to a chemistry department, a physics department, a biology department, uh, an economics department, but they don't really exist as as purely those those that that field of study anymore. They all uh, involve some aspects. So you increasingly see the notion of institutes or centres being set up that actually bridge across those disciplines, uh, or you have faculty who have appointments in two or more of those silos to try and, you know, compensate for this rigid uh, structure that really, in many ways, should not necessarily exist anymore. And the students who come, I mean, they don't, you know, they don't see, they don't care. They think it's wrong. Uh, they just want to study what it is they want to study, which goes across the, the, this gamut. But, you know, changing that culture uh, where you've got, you know, they've been financed this way. And it's particularly, there are different financial models in universities, but one of them is called this RCM model, where the money that comes in, whether it be from tuition or what, what extraneous money from grants and so on, and philanthropy flows directly into the schools and departments. So they hang on to that. And so they don't, you know, they don't want to see that structure changed. Uh, if, I think, if, you know, I don't think if you ask any university president, if they were starting building something from scratch today, that they would do the same thing that's there now. Right. I, it may have made sense years ago. So what we're trying to do, even when we're constrained in a university uh, framework, is effectively trying to create a university within a university that's different. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, in fairness, we have enormous support from our leadership, uh, our president and provost and so on, uh, to actually mm -hmm. do that. and. It, that really excites me. I, you know, I'm hoping um, we're not the only ones thinking this way, but just that we, we and others become exemplars for what higher ed should be in the future. So I'd say that's so, one large aspect of it. But there's another so, aspect. Sorry. Well, if we could dig into that a little bit more, what are the kinds of things that you would like to do differently in the future in your university in a university? How, you know, how, how, what are the changes that you're making? Well, we're, you know, I think we're creating these notion of what we call collaboratories, which are really these entities that we form with another school. So just as an example, with education, clearly there's a huge role. This is our school of education, which is not, you know, related to the university. It's they, they focus a lot on K-12. But right. what they've realized is that educational analytics and how they, the, the notion of precision education, that instead of teaching, taking a class load of K-12 uh, children and essentially teaching them every, and, ex and examining them in exactly the same way, that they're individuals with all sorts of different learning capabilities and so on. We do, you know, we recognise to some degree students who have learning disabilities or are particularly, you know, uh, you know, prodigies or whatever it might be at the other end of the spectrum. But there's a large, large group that just get treated as one great blob. And that that's just not appropriate. I mean, I thought that with my own, when my own kids were in school. So the idea that, but they don't have all the expertise in analytics, 
to really uh, you know, make total advantage of what they know about education. So when we come together, because we don't know as much as we should about education of K-12 children, then when we put the two together, bingo, hopefully some magic gotcha. will happen. Right, That's right, right. One right. example. So, yeah, so similar to the idea of um, having medical data be combined with data science expertise and traffic data um, in your uh, previous car accident example, this is yeah. another example. In this collaboratory, we have uh, teachers with uh, sub well, education researchers with uh, domain expertise in K-12 teaching. And so they can combine with uh, data science generalists who are proficient in uh, organizing data sets and analyzing data sets uh, to help uh, figure out where the insights are, where the significant connections are uh, in the data that the uh, education department has. That's a really good example. I could just drive it a little further where just the the ever improving or ever changing technology has an impact on all of this is, you know, now devices that do things like eye tracking are very inexpensive. So you can actually eye track every student in the classroom. And basically, you know, that data tells you a lot about how, about, <laughs> tells you a lot about the teacher, but it also tells you a lot about the students. So that's you know, one aspect. But on the other hand, that also has significant ethical consequences. And, you know, that, that's the, the, the responsibility and the ethical aspects of data science is something that we're particularly concerned about in our school. Um, but, you know, that, uh, but, so there's a lots of different components to this. But technology yeah. is obviously helping drive the moving towards more towards this precision education with caveats. Cool. Yeah, precision education sounds cool. And now, so I wonder if you'll be able to go back. I interrupted you to get an example of the kinds of things that you were trying to do differently in your uh, School of Data Science. And so you were about to say something else. <laughs> you were like, that's, so I've finished my one main point and now I have another. And then I interrupted you. Do you remember what you were going to say? Uh, no, but I'll make up something. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the, how we think about ourselves as a group, as a team within the, the school. Um, oh, actually, so I think that's, that, you know, we're trying to reduce hierarchies as much as possible. Academia is very hierarchical, and we're trying right. to address that. But that wasn't the point I was going to make. I think the point I was going to make is eating our own dog food, uh, which oh, yeah. sort of relates to some extent to the, the, the example I just said about K-12. But, you know, applying that, you know, broadly across uh, what we're doing, we in academia, and I think this is generally true, is we're not, you know, I, I remember saying to our president, <laughs> I always like sticking the knife in and saying to him when we, when we formed the school, uh, he congratulated me and said, it's great we got the school off the ground. I said, Jim, this is great. Now all we need to do is to find a reason to hire our own graduates because we're not actually doing enough data science on, our, on ourselves. So right. we're not uh, actually, for example, you know, uh, a project that we've and others are sort of things that people are looking at is there's obviously a great concern about the mental health of our students. And, you know, what you really want is predictive models that give you a sense uh, of someone potentially going off the rails before they go off the rails. Right. And so the interrelationship between uh, their health record 
uh, and their performance record, their transcript, if you like, uh, so it needs to be much more finely nuanced than that, uh, is, is a, you know, a particularly important area of study. Uh, obviously, that also has significant uh, ethical considerations. But, uh, you know, in principle, the promise is there um, of really uh, improving the student experience and, and, uh, and their wellness through data science. And, and that is, you know, there's clearly, it doesn't matter where you turn, whether it's the muffin or it's wellness <laughs> students, there's so much to do. Yeah, we are really at the very beginning of the impact that data and data science will make in our lives. Uh, we haven't realized a fraction of 1% of what's possible. And I will get to a big uh, question related to that uh, later on in the episode for you. For now, I have a relatively straightforward, pragmatic question for you, Philip, which is, what are the most important data science skills in your view? You run the School of Data Science. You probably have a lot of insight into uh, the substance that students are being taught, whether they're going off into academia or industry. What are the most important skills for our listeners to have? Yeah, maybe I'll couch that in how we think about data science, because I think that's a precursor to what we think is the most important skills to provide our students. So we, we've come up with a model for data science we call the four plus one. So there's four elements of data science. Uh, the obvious one, of course, is analytics, uh, which is what everybody thinks about. But I think there are three others that we feel are equally important. And, every, you know, and those are um, systems, which is how we think about how we move data around the hardware and software, the cybersecurity and so on. Uh, another one is design. So uh, that's the third one. So how we think about human-computer interaction, uh, right. which is cr critical for communication, dissemination, and that sort of thing, which is mm -hmm. clearly something that's very important to students. Uh, and then the last one is what we call value, which gets back to this notion. I mentioned ethics a couple of times, but really it's much more than that. It's really about ethics, policy, justice, law. And it's really the way we think about it as value is the tension that exists between the ability to have data science produce something uh, and the nefarious effect that that might have. It might have positive effects, but it almost might have negative effects. There's a tension there, and that's what we think about value. So those are the four elements, and the plus one is all the domains that we apply to that we've been talking uh -huh. about uh, all along. So I would say what's important for our students to go away is, is to go away with that balance, is to have to be thinking about all four of those components. Yes, they're going to get jobs where they're going to specialize in some aspect of it. But, you know, we're, we're basically providing them with a grounding, um, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, in the four plus one model. And then they'll, they'll specialize in probably one or more of those four areas. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive by any means. But, you know, that's how we, we think about uh, training our students. I love it. That was such a great answer. I'm glad that I asked. And <laughs> so then as a follow-up, a kind of a, a tricky, uh, a potentially tricky follow-up, in addition to these data science skills, this four plus one analytics systems design value, and then, of course, domain-specific application that's important today, um, do you think 
that in the future, the the kinds of data science skills that that might be most valuable will shift. Um, so maybe you know maybe not you know relative to these broad areas that you're talking about in the four plus one, but maybe kind of more specifically, are there kinds of skills um, that listeners should be developing to prepare themselves for the data science of the future? Yeah, so I, I see what you're getting at. I mean, certainly, you know, having a, a reasonable statistical background, being able to use the tools, the tools du jour uh, and the languages du jour uh, mm-hmm. is really important, whether today being things like R and Python. Um, yeah. I think clearly, you know, those basic skills uh, are really important. But I, I also, you know, I, I think about, and it's partly the, my own uh, bias and background, that I think, uh, and I actually, it's interesting when you bring a whole group of different people with different perspectives about data science together, you get so many different viewpoints. Um, I think a lot about what I would, what I guess I would call data engineering, which mm-hmm. is the sort of precursive work that goes on to all the excitement. Um, and I spent, you know, my own career in, uh, in biomedicine, spent a lot of time thinking about and uh, developing tools and things around this. So, you know, I think so. It, you know, how you engineer the data to do all these uh, incredible things that we've been talking about, um, you know, I think it, it is really important in, uh, so that you can, you know, you can deliver all of that in a timely and uh, accurate way. Yeah, couldn't agree more that data engineering is one of the most valuable skill areas for our listeners to be picking up. Um, those kinds of things that you mentioned before that, like statistics and being able to program in, say, R or Python, those are essential. There's there's no question. There's no getting around that. Um, and something that is becoming more essential as data sets get larger and larger is data engineering, being able to handle very large data sets, um, more than you can fit into memory on an individual machine, and being able to stream information from these very large data sets, clean it up, um, identify um, signal from the noise amongst potentially a lot of noisy data that, that have been collected. Um, I couldn't agree more that this data engineering is a hugely valuable skill. And in fact, assuming that uh, recording goes ahead as anticipated, uh, the very next guest episode, episode 595, coming up next week, will be with Joe Rice. And so he has just finished writing a book on data engineering, and we'll have the whole episode focused on that. So. Uh, Keep an ear should, out for. <laughs> I should be avidly listening in. Um, yeah, no, I think it's it's really important. And our, you know, our, we have an amazing advisory board of uh, private sector experts, including the CIO of Capital One, former uh, president, CEO of CEO of Verisk Analytics, and you know they tell us the same thing um, that you know that data engineering is from the, the point of view of their organisations is just you know the the need of the day agreed um cool that you have uh, all of that guidance from industry shaping what uh what you're covering at the university of virginia school of data science so we've talked a lot about the school that you have uh, founded and that you're dean of um but i promised earlier that i would force you (laughs) to talk about your own research as well so um we've alluded to it um, I called it computational biology, and then you mentioned that uh, more recently it's being called biomedical data science. 
Uh, tell us about your particular uh, area of research. Yeah, so I guess it, it's fairly broad, but at the core of it is uh, how I think about protein structure. So this is the three-dimensional structure uh, of, of proteins and DNA and RNA for that matter. But I focus particularly on uh, proteins. And, you know, we were involved in, in uh, helping develop uh, a resource called the Protein Data Bank, which is the public repository, the open source, pub, or the open data repository for all of this material that uh, has been collected now over my lifetime. When I started, there were 77 uh, structures within this data resource. There's now close to 200,000. Uh, and that's had a profound effect on how we understand biology. Um, so, the, you know, my research has involved a lot around that, including developing algorithms that, you know, compare structures uh, with each other, um, actually find binding sites within these structures such that they can be used to actually design drugs. Um, and, you know, I, it's been, and that those are two areas we also used structure my favorite one is actually how we've used structure to study evolution um it, it's just i'll bore you with just an example of that for one second is please the, the, <laughs> that's, there's that's nothing the anyway. listeners love more than being bored by <laughs> intricate data science details no and i'm i'm serious they will never be bored this is what we're here for so so if, if you think about the data of proteins, a protein consists of about 300 amino acids and there are 20 different types of amino acid. That is 20. So if you took at all the random possibilities for proteins, that's 20 to the 300. That is more than all of the atoms in the universe. So why is nature only, uh, you know, we, we know several million of these, but, you know, but that and there's probably certainly more to be discovered, but the number is extremely small. So mm -hmm. nature has, has basically given this incredible reductionism in, in creating life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then what's even more profound is that of those millions, they all fold up into a matter of thousand three-dimensional structures. So what is that? So that, you know, that was something that I thought was just incredible you know this is nature's done this and it's there's like several thousand jigsaw pieces that when you put them together right. in different ways make up right. everything that you know every species every so you know the so what is the, you start thinking to yourself what does that mean and it yeah. means one of the things it means is to create a new jigsaw piece to create mm -hmm. a new three-dimensional shape mm -hmm. is actually a pretty rare event oh. and so we actually started looking at now you know with data there's enough data that you can actually see the shapes that exist in you know many many different thousands of species and so what we one afternoon just on a laptop we did an experiment where we took that data and we we basically said so you could say okay i have all these shapes on one axis and then on the other axis i have uh every different species that has those shapes and i just it's a matrix and I just, in each cell of that matrix, if that, if that shape exists in that species, I give it a one. If it doesn't exist, I give it a zero. Mm -hmm. That binary matrix can be converted into a tree. That tree is the tree of life. Mm -hmm. So it's just stunning that in an afternoon on a laptop, 
you right. could actually do what you know many evolutionary biologists have spent inordinate amounts of time doing, uh, even before doing it. With, you can do it with sequences as well. But it, you know, this is uh, I, I just got an amazing kick out of that. And it's uh, you know, if that's not boring you enough, I'll take it one step further. <laughs> Please, so, I'm so. <laughs> I'm so I'm so desperately bored. I need more. <laughs> so when we were uh, publishing a paper that described this, I actually gave it to my uh, bioinformatics class at UCSD as the final exam. I, mm -hmm. This is you know this is double dipping. So basically, it's this is your final exam. I want you to propose the next set of experiments based on this paper. What would you do next? And, you know, with the hope that, of course, I got a lot of rubbish, but I also got, <laughs> uh, there was a student who was actually at Scripps Institute of Oceanography, and he mm -hmm. pointed out to me that, um, that you know, I kind of knew it, but he, he highlighted it, that 90-something percent of all evolution has occurred in the ocean based on the 4 billion years of the Earth's existence. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. So, and he was an oceanographer, and he said, and, you know, in that time, the geochemistry of the ocean has changed dramatically, uh, particularly from what's called uh, reductive to eugenic to oxi oxidative. And he said, I wonder whether we can see those fingerprints of those changes in these structures that we're talking about. And lo and behold, we found amazing correlations between the changes that have occurred in the geochemistry of the ocean because of those change of that change in the re from reductive to oxidative that, uh, you know, that shaped life. So first of so this is get, sort of gets back to why data science is so important because basically you've had a whole bunch of people who study geochemistry. You have a whole bunch of people who study evolution, but you've had very, very few people who ever studied both. And suddenly right. the data brings them together, you know, data can bring them together and you start making new discoveries about ourselves, about life itself. So, you know, that, that, that you know, in, in the, the grand scheme of, of academia and scholarship, that didn't get me the most citations, but it's actually the, the work I'm, uh, in some ways, that we're most proud of. That was such a cool example. And it is mind-blowing to me to think, so I've done, you probably don't know this about me, but I have a biology background. So my PhD is in neuroscience, and I did a lot of biology, particularly as an undergrad, including evolutionary biology courses. And so... I know things about uh, genomics and about proteomics, but I did not know this fact that there's only a few thousand kinds of protein shapes, functional protein shapes, uh, and that it's and that that very small number. Because I I often think in my mind that there must be orders of magnitude more of that, given the diversity of function that different organisms can have. Um, it's wild to me that from a plant, a single-celled organism like an amoeba and me and a leopard and a turtle, um, that you can get these wildly divergent uh, organisms from just a few thousands of protein structures. That's really cool. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's my favorite fact in all of biology that, that there's that level of reductionism. And, of course... You know, they come together in many different ways, uh, you know, to form. I mean, it's kind of this happens at actually what you would call the domain level or at the fold level. 
So it, it's, there's lots of nuances about this, but the de- general principle is correct. Um, so a, uh, and a thought that occurs to me, given the, the increasing level of understanding that we have of protein structure, could we then engineer new protein structures um, to perform some kind of function that maybe doesn't happen in nature? So um, could we be engineering uh, protein structures to allow us to uh, clean up the oceans or to convert uh, to fix carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into a fuel that we could be burning, um, have bacteria that are doing that. Uh, should we, so this, this is quite an open-ended question and it wasn't one I was anticipating asking. Uh, so I know you weren't prepared for it, but, uh, do we have, you know, if we're looking to have these new kinds of functions, if we want to engineer bacteria or some other organism to be doing something functional for us, should we be looking at the thousands of protein structures that already exist and recombining those in new ways? Or sh- could we be thinking about new kinds of protein function that don't exist in nature? Well, remember I said that, well, the short answer is yes. Um, but remember I said that there's millions of sequences and then there are thousands of structures. So, right. you know, what's going on now, and this is really, you know, it comes right back to data science as, uh, as you know, that AlphaFold 2 was this development by uh, DeepMind, a spin-off from Google, to uh, actually predict the structures from those sequences. This was the science's breakthrough of the year uh, last year, and it, it's actually a profound development. So what's happening now as we speak, I may actually be almost done, is to actually predict the structure of all of those, of those millions. Uh, so instead of having, you know, of course, when we do that, question is: Are there things that come out which are new that don't are not encompassed uh, in by this in the thousands? Yeah. And yeah, you know, uh, and then so that then would that then gives us a bigger picture of what protein fold space looks like. Right? And then the question is: Well, where are the gaps in that space? There's clearly going to be you know gaps between things that we already know, and then there are things that are outliers that we have no idea. So, yes, there is the prince, you know, and this kind of protein synthesis is clearly the next frontier is, you know, and, and it's sort of reverse engineering, right? You've got, you've got these, pro, you know, where, where do you start from? You engineer a sequence that then is going to give you a new structure. So there's clearly going to be movement in that direction to address exactly the kind of uh, issues that you're, you're talking about. But you know, there's you know, again, like all of these things, there's it, it's 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 easy to sit here at a podcast and talk about it for a few minutes, but actually, there's a lot of sweat and tears to actually make these things happen. But the potential is there, uh, and then of course, there's also you know, the aspect that you could actually engineer something that's not desirable. So there's huge right, 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 and dangers in that as well. Right. Yes. Like biological warfare dangers. Yes. Mm, yes. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, um, yeah. And so one of the great things about this podcast is that I get to leverage the decades of knowledge that you and other guests have built up, you and your colleagues in, um, in, in your field. So you've, I, and then I get to spend like an hour saying of all the decades of things that you and everyone in your field has ever learned. 
what is the absolute coolest stuff? And you're certainly serving up a lot of it in this episode. Uh, thank you. Well, you caught me at um, the right time because I'm old enough that it's all going to start disappearing. So, <laughs> What's going to start disappearing? Uh, well, well, what little knowledge I had. Oh. <laughs> that, that comes back to your study of neuroscience. But yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, all right. So another um, question that occurred to me as we were talking about all this is, um, proteins um, do their work by moving. So when we talk about these thousands of, of functional protein shapes, maybe as a result of some of this deep mind research that sounds like it's imminent, uh, you know, we'll find out there, there are a few thousand more or something. Um, but all of that, the, you know, these proteins, they're not a fixed shape. They, they do work. Um, most of the time. So, you know, they are things like enzymes that, uh, that allow all of the processes in our cells through all the different cell types in our body to, to, uh, to operate. And so, um, do you think that we're close to being able to predict in four dimensions? <laughs> uh, so, you know, these, breakthrough of the year that you described last year with the DeepMind Alpha uh, AlphaFold 2 algorithm, um, it is working on solving a data set that is only trying to resolve the three-dimensional structure of proteins. But uh, ultimately, that fourth dimension of time is going to be presumably helpful to understanding uh, how this protein actually functions or um, how genetic mutations lead to dysfunction in that protein. Um, so is there, is there anyone doing research on that? Uh, on that fourth dimension. Oh yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of work in uh, molecular dynamics, which is what you're describing, you know, where you know you're looking at the trajectories uh, over time of uh, these proteins, which, as you point out, are not in any way static. The problem is the computational time to do that, even at right. uh, you know the nanosecond level, is quite significant. And you know, but we are you know as Obviously, as computing, you know, and there are specialized hardware devices that have been built uh, to do this. David Shaw's uh, efforts are particularly noteworthy in this. And, and um, you know, so we're, we're garnering more and more data on these, uh, these simulations, um, which, of course, ultimately gets to the point of uh, allowing uh, you know, machine learning to actually use that data effectively. So yes, it's this is definitely coming, and it's it's a critical aspect. Uh, and we think about this in my own work with respect to drug discovery. Uh, that you know you can actually look at a stack of image and say, well, that drug might bind to that protein, but in a in a, in a different instant, that binding site is going to look a little differently, and that drug may not bind to it. So that you know, there's all of those sorts of considerations. But it's you know, it's just it's all part of that evolution. But you actually made me think about something that uh, if I just bore you with again for a second, and that Please. I've been teaching students for years is uh, what I call the curse of the ribbon. So, and that I think the, the motion of proteins brings this into uh, focus because what happens, and I, this is just human nature, is you know we've all seen you know the iconic structure of DNA uh, as a double helix, and we mm -hmm. uh, many people, you know, almost anyone now seen pictures particularly they're they're in the new york times all the time what they were when covid was on the front page uh of you know various proteins that uh, make up the virus 
And those uh, are effectively what you'll see there is quite often what I call ribbon diagrams, which is a visualization of some very complex data uh, of what, what the atomic structure of these device of uh, these proteins look like. Mm-hmm. So that's all good. It's actually gives it just creates a visual stimulus that you can work with. And no one in the world would want to do away with that because it's been so powerful for many, many years. However, it also gets you, it, you get into this mindset that before long, you actually think that's what a protein is like. Uh, so it's a useful tool, but it actually sort of whitewashes to some extent what really proteins are like, including as it relates to motion, which is what made me think of it. So, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, so the question is, I think you always have to be asking yourself, this is not, this is just one representation, but it's not necessarily the true representation. And I think this right. comes back, you know, to data and more generally in data science, you need to be thinking about, you know, how it's great to have these visualizations. It's how, you know, it's the human computer interface piece, it's the design piece, but you've, you've got to look at it in the right perspective. And it's not the only way of thinking about these things because you've got to open your mind to alternative uh, representations that might lead you in new directions and new points of discovery. Super cool. Thank you for boring us again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So truly your work is fascinating and I'm so glad that we've been able to dig into it. Um, One last piece of uh, your professional puzzle that we haven't dug into much that we've only alluded to in fact, right at the beginning of the episode, we alluded to that connection between Xiaoli Meng, Amy Brand, and yourself, uh, some previous guests of the show, and you around uh, open access. So you are an advocate of open source, open science, and open scholarship. Uh, you've written several books on the Unix operating system, um, and you founded an open source, an open access journal, computational biology. You uh, participate in the open uh, project of the Protein Data Bank. So um, what has inspired or motivated you to be such a strong advocate for openness? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I, you know, first of all, data science would itself, as, as it's a data science podcast, uh, wouldn't exist if it wasn't right. for open uh, data. So right. how this is a... And, and GitHub. Yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy. I mean we are unbelievably blessed in this field that um, academics and also we're so lucky that the industrial giants, not Apple, <laughs> but other than Apple, um, uh, Meta, uh, Google, Microsoft, they in order to help attract talent, they allow their talent to be publishing in archive an open access publication and publishing corresponding code into github and it is i it's a me imagine if we didn't i don't i don't know what we'd would a school of data science exist would we even think about it as a separate discipline there wasn't for all of this um these these open source contributions anyway i'm railroading probably all the things you wanted to say no no no. it's it's uh, you know i i appreciate your enthusiasm because it's exactly what you've said and you know i think that it, it's, you know, we're trying to get to the point where it just becomes the normal practice. It is in data science. There's no question about that. And, you know, we, we make it part of our promotion and tenure policy that you, you, you need to put, I mean, you can, you can choose to opt out, but the, 
the default clause is you're going to make everything you do open uh, and fairly early in the research life cycle. And, you know, I think that's, that's just so important to, to the evolution of the field. Um, you know, not, it's still not, and it's very interesting when you're, when you're in data science and you're working across many different disciplines. I mean, disciplines treat this quite differently. You know, even within the uh, biomedicine, how clinicians uh, often feel about uh, longitudinal data in a clinical trial that's been going on for a number of years and the need, to, you know, to protect that, their own use versus making it public, uh, you know, obviously de-identified uh, is, you know, to some degree understandable. So, you know, I think, uh, and this has been a, a, you know, a long going, an ongoing you know, evolution. Uh, of scholarly openness. Um, we're certainly not there yet, but clearly there's lots of science. The, the sort of levers within the world of scholarship uh, are either the publishers, and of course you alluded to, uh, you know, I was involved with the Public Library of Science for a number of years, and that clearly was a big move by publishers now. You know, and then of course, what you don't anticipate are the negative aspects of what happens with open publishing. You know, you get, then you suddenly get all these predatory journals, you know, cropping up and all that sort of thing. But anyway, the publishers are one lever. The other lever at the other end uh, are, of course, the funders. And NIH is about to come out with a new data sharing. In 2023, they have a new data sharing policy, uh, which is, you know, more rigorous than what they've had, the one they've had for quite a long time. So they're actually pushing. Uh, I'd say where the next large push is, is at the institutional level itself. So uh, that you know, we actually think about uh, institutions more uh, about surrounding open scholarship, and that's something that's happening. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, an organisation called Helios, which uh, the University of Virginia is now part of. Many a number of I don't know, fifty, hundred more academic institutions are actually agreeing to push the notion of open science, open scholarship. Um, and I, I wanted to say open science, but it's more than that because it relates to the humanities and uh, right. well, um, and really look at it at the institutional level, exchange best practices about what we're doing to try and promote uh, open scholarship within our own institutions, share those practices uh, and do better. And this is this is being uh, under I'm saying underwritten financially, but because it's not, but at least. Uh, uh, philosophically and uh, support, you know, uh, support from the National Academies uh, of Sciences. So, you know, I think that pushing the whole notion of open scholarship within academic institutions is the big next step. And, you know, we're, we feel as a school of data science, we have a very, the reasons I mentioned, a, a really important role there. Very cool. Um, exciting to see that, uh, Funding bodies and institutions are are pushing people in the right direction, and I think I don't know. It's probably for a lot of people the direction that they feel like. There's probably a bit of a uh, a good feeling to having your scholarship be available, the data sources that you're using, the code that you're using. Well, it becomes very pre obvious when suddenly you find yourself with some medical condition that you're concerned about, and you know you you can get significant amount of information from the likes of WebND and think and tools like that. The moment mm -hmm. you try and dig into, uh, you know, more, more in-depth 
you you start to hit paywalls. So right. you've pay, you you've probably paid as a taxpayer for that research, but you right. can't access it. Right. But just to that be is, perceived as it is inconceivable. Very, yeah, it's in industry, especially now. When I was in a university, it didn't bother me so much because through the library, I had access to all of these journals. I could put my VPN on, and I had access to all of it. And now I don't. Um, so I'm lucky that in data science, a lot of the data science papers are an archive. Yeah. But uh, as you say, when I want to look up something medical, yeah, I can't dig into the references. I can only read the abstract. I mean, we when I was at NIH, we we made a big push uh, in, in in biomedicine towards pre supporting preprints. And I remember making a pre there's a there was an organization that sprung up around it called it still is called ASAP Bio. And I remember presenting to the direct all of the 27 directors of the NIH institutes and centers the idea that we should actually support preprints as valid uh, research objects that could actually be put into grant applications and so forth. And, you know, as we're walking out of that meeting, Francis Collins, the director of NIH at the time, said to me, wow, that was the least contentious meeting of the directors we've ever been, I've ever been at. <laughs> Because they were all, uh, you know, really behind it, and um, you know that became part of the the fabric of uh, research. And you know that, yeah, there's a doubt. You know, you can, it's always an argument to be made that it's not peer a preprint is not yet peer reviewed. Right. But at the same time, you know, given the the speed of publishing in many areas, uh, yeah. I think there's enormous value in it personally, and I, I'm. I'm really glad to see that it's becoming more and more adopted, not just in biomedicine, but in other fields as well. Cool. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right. So we've had some big conversations in this episode already. We've talked about where data science is going. We've talked about where biological research is going. And so it is clear that lots of exciting changes are coming. Um, and every year, Data storage is cheaper. Every year, compute costs are lower. We have exponentially more abundant sensors collecting data all over the place. We've got uh, increasing interconnectivity between people around the world, and that interconnectivity is faster and faster. People getting access to archive papers and open access data um, in real time at you know increasing bandwidths. Um, so technology as a whole, particularly as it pertains to data science, is advancing at a faster pace each year that goes on. So given your decades of experience in computational biology research, and as a, a bureaucrat, to use your own words, um, in uh, data science education, what excites you about the future? Uh, maybe in the lifetimes of your children, how could their lives be transformed by the work that people like you have been doing in your career? Yeah, it's. I remember reading uh, a book about. Uh, it was on the New York Times bestseller. So it was a whole group of people uh, who made amazing contributions, uh, including people like Tim Berners Lee, uh, trying to predict what was going to happen in fifty years. And frankly, it was all pretty pathetic. In the in the no one could really, <laughs> no one could actually really go out beyond five years. Um, right. So you know, I. I I think in the near term, obviously, uh, from a technological point of view, 
uh, I think, you know, virtual reality and that that notion of hu- human computer interaction uh, is is obviously it's the kind of thing that matters. And other well, all the big companies are uh, are totally getting on board with. And you know, there's no question that that will have uh, profound implications as a technology. Uh, I just, in other ways, it's just the evolution of the what's happening already with respect to just the the breadth and depth of data that can be explored. And obviously all the technologies around machine learning and and so on are improving. But in the end, the driver is all that data. And it's just just coming uh, from, you know, more and more diverse uh, places and by means, you know, as you mentioned, sensors is the obvious one. But, you know, that, that as, as, as we begin to grapple with it, as we get more and more success stories around what can be achieved, um, you know, if the breakthrough in science is last year is from machine learning using a lot of biological data, uh, clearly that's going to happen. You know, it'll be in a completely different. And, this, and just the pressure, the pressure for us to be able to apply that, those capabilities to the problems that we're facing. So, you know, I think there's going to be, I'd say the other change is going to be this, just the, the cultural shift about how we think about science. I mean, it's clear t- to, uh, I can give a little plug for it. I don't, I'm not sure if it's embargoed or not, but, you know, we have a paper coming out you know, as a science policy forum in a couple of weeks that really says that the way we're set up to solve the world's problems through research is very poor right now in that there's the, the interrelationship between, for example, in the US, the federal agencies and the research that they're doing uh, and, the, and the infrastructures that they have to support that research. That, you know, and, that, and, that, and as a result, the siloing of the data and other aspects that we need to overcome that. So, I mean, we need to create this kind of universal commons of, of, of information that can be accessed. And it's going to happen. Um, I think the other thing that it's going to happen in unusual forums. I mean, the fact that the major breakthrough in science uh, last year was effectively made by a small group of, or say they're at Google, but you know, basically yeah. it wasn't in academia. Uh, yeah. You know, it's the notion that someone with a pencil uh, or, or a laptop uh, can actually independently. Uh, you know, make great contributions. The citizen science aspect, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of change there. Uh, there's a lot of really well-educated people out there who can do amazing things and they don't actually have to be in, you know, part of groups within companies and so on. So I could go on about this, but uh, just a, a quick antidote. My son works yeah. with Astral Light and Magic and yeah. one of the, the major rendering breakthroughs that they've made that the company... Disney company was actually, as I understand from him, made by some young, you know, twenty-something-year-old on his own, uh, contributing. Suddenly, sent them renderings that were better than a company of that size could produce, because mm. he produced a better algorithm. Uh, you know, it's, cool. You know, that's you know, capturing and nurturing and evolving those kind of capabilities from all over the map. And thinking about it in the context of, you know, frankly, diversity of of, of people who can contribute um, yeah. is just so important. 
Yeah, billions of people across yeah. Africa, Asia, Europe, the Americas, all of whom could be plugged in to this. Uh, I mean, we are to some extent already plugged in via the internet, many of us, to open access data, to uh, open access publications and uh, open source software. And yeah, anybody, that 20-year-old could be devising a better algorithm than a company's been able to think of. And Alphabet can have a group of people that can create an algorithm that blows out of the water lots of other uh, you know, individual university groups on protein structure. It's, uh, yeah, it is uh, exciting and uh, no doubt more of that to continue. So that was a really, that was a cool take on what's to come, Philip. I appreciate it. Um, so we're reaching the end of the episode, which means it's time for me to ask you for a book recommendation. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, let's see. So the moment, uh, I'm actually reading a book that was, I think on Obama, uh, President Obama's, uh, uh, list, which was the ministry of the future, which is, uh, unfortunately a very scary, but very realistic view of what the future is going to look like. So, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly recommend that. If I might actually rep mention another one, I, uh, I was just Certainly. in Spain on vacation and uh, I read Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. And oh, yeah. I, I have to say that and it, I, this is heresy, but, um, it, you know, in a way it's not that that's such great literature in my opinion, but it's the fact that the person who wrote it was just such an interesting person uh, and, and obviously was doing an incredible number of crazy things, uh, which, you know, I, I, I would personally like to aspire to, even at my own <laughs> age. Nice. I like that. That's a great recommendation. Those are, I love uh, how we have this kind of this nonfiction futurology uh, recommendation and then a classic from Hemingway that uh, is inspiring your own character, it sounds like. So it sounds like a great read. Um, all right. And then the final question for you is how people should follow you. You've uh, enlightened us uh, with all kinds of boring topics today. And so if we want to see some boring tweets, <laughs> or yeah, how should I'm we just follow you? at PE Born. Um, yes, they are pretty boring. I don't, I don't tweet <laughs> any, anything uh, beyond work stuff. Uh, I also have a Dean's blog uh, where I blog things around. Uh, that's on WordPress. You can just look up Dean's blog, born WordPress. Um, and, you know, I, that relates to things that we're facing in the school. So, in fact, uh, I'm actually up for my five-year review at the university right now. Uh, leaders go through this. And my review group last week uh, asked me, What's, do we, will we need a school of data science in 10 years? So I actually wrote a blog set telling him, of course, we needed that School of Data Science in 10 years. So that was the latest blog I just did a few days ago. Nice. That sounds great. Um, thank you so much for everything in this episode. This has been fascinating. I've loved speaking to you, Philip. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to get you on the show again someday and to hear the latest of what you've been up to. Thank well, you. thanks, John. I'm not sure I've got anything left to say, but it's great being <laughs> part of the show. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It feels like I say this every week, but yet again, 
What an incredible guest Professor Bourne was. He's an adept, humble, and charming explainer of seemingly anything, from the technical aspects of his research to real-world practicalities and implications. In today's episode, Philip filled us in on how sharing approaches across disciplines such as medicine, transportation, and data science can facilitate discoveries such as the likely bodily location of car crash injuries based on details of the collision. He talked about the four plus one clustering of data science skills into analytics, systems, design, value, and domain-specific application. He talked about how alongside essential core skills like statistics and programming, data engineering is emerging as one of the most valuable areas of data science expertise. He talked about the evolution of computing within other academic subjects from something fringe only for weirdos in the 1980s through to the computation-first nature of many experiments designed today, no matter whether in the sciences, arts, or humanities. And he talked about how computational approaches to understanding protein structure like AlphaFold2 enable us to understand the impact of genetic defects, discover new drugs, and help prevent climate change. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Philip's Twitter handle and blog, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 593. That's superdatascience.com slash 593. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne Seabird, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another super, super data science episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>